Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in San Francisco. More than 100 groups are calling on the U.S. Department of Justice to independently investigate abuse by staff at a Bay Area women's prison. Prosecutors have charged the warden and three other officers at the Federal Correctional Institution, or FCI, in Dublin with sexually abusing people in their custody. But that's not enough, says Susan Beatty, an attorney with Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland who represents clients at FCI Dublin. You know, arresting a few bad actors isn't going to solve the systemic issues at the facility that led to this abuse and that continue to allow abuse to occur. Advocates want a watchdog independent of the Bureau of Prisons. Down in Los Angeles, the L.A. Police Commission has approved a new policy that requires officers to explain on camera why they're making a traffic or pedestrian stop. KPCC's Emily Elena Dugdale has more. The commission cracked down specifically on pretextual stops. That's when an officer makes a traffic or pedestrian stop for a minor issue and uses it to search for a more serious crime. Officers will now have to turn on their body camera before a stop and explain why they suspect someone of a crime. If they don't, they'll face retraining. Further violations will lead to discipline, though it's not clear what form it will take. LAPD Chief Michael Moore said it will take some time to train officers on the new policy. I do not want to rush this in and say it's effective tomorrow. Research has found pretextual stops lead to people of color being disproportionately stopped and searched despite their being less likely to have contraband. The police officers union says the new policy will make it harder to get illegal guns off the street. Police reform advocates want pretextual stops banned completely. For the California Report, I'm Emily Elena Dugdale. Switching to housing, poor people and people of color have been largely kept out of neighborhoods with single-family homes. A new study out of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute confirms that LA's single-family zoning laws are to blame. Here to break down the report's findings for us is KPCC and LAist housing reporter David Wagner. David, talk to us about what the researchers found here. Well, you know, the question of what's driving racial segregation in L.A., that's a complicated question. The researchers found that across the greater L.A. area, the vast majority of residential land, about 78 percent, is exclusively zoned for single family homes. So that means no dense apartment buildings are allowed. Now, you know, this zoning itself doesn't necessarily keep out black or Latino residents. But restrictive zoning does dramatically drive up the price of homes. 
the study finds. And in a region where we have these vast racial wealth gaps, the question is really who can afford to live where? You know, when the researchers looked at the demographics in uh, different parts of LA, they found that when single family zoning increases in a neighborhood, that neighborhood's Latino population dramatically decreases. The researchers conclude from all this that single family zoning creates cities that are whiter, that are wealthier, and that often provide better life outcomes for children raised in them. L.A. just uh, submitted a housing proposal and it got rejected for some of these reasons that it it didn't address um, racial segregation. Um, There wasn't a sense of fair housing. I mean, how does that relate to the study that came out? What you're talking about here is that under state law, local governments have to plan for new housing every eight years. And in the cycle we're in right now, Southern California has this big new goal of 1.3 million new homes. Almost half a million of those homes are supposed to be built just in the city of L.A. So, you know, L.A. has its work cut out for it here, and it recently submitted its plan for new housing to the state. That plan included increasing apartment building density along commercial corridors. It encouraged homeowners to build backyard accessory dwelling units. You know, those were some of the plans for getting new housing built in L.A. However, the state rejected L.A.'s plan for just the reasons you cited right there. The state said, you know, L.A. actually did a good job in their eyes accommodating lots of new housing, but they said L.A. did not have specific plans for tackling these longstanding patterns of racial segregation And it didn't have plans to break down these barriers to fair housing. We've tried to find out how to make housing more accessible. And accessible housing is incredibly important. But there are also people throughout the state who just want to be housed better or are looking for something more stable. I don't know. I just sort of wonder, like, at a time when so many people are spending so much on rent, Would we run into this issue of rejecting a housing proposal that ticks some of the boxes, but not all of them? Is this a sort of perfect being the enemy of the good situation? Well, that's certainly what a lot of housing advocates would say happened to L.A.'s housing plan. You know, they thought the city actually did a pretty good job here of laying out specific ideas for accommodating new housing. They say the, the the city of L.A. wasn't acting like other cities that have been accused of channeling all this hypothetical new housing into parts of the city where homes are really unlikely to actually get built. So that's what they would say. You know, they would say that the state, by rejecting L.A.'s plan, did make the perfect the enemy of the good here. We'll see what happens now with L.A.'s plan uh, now that the city has to go back to the drawing board and resubmit this to the state. David Wagner is a housing reporter for KPCC in Los Angeles. David, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Now on to tech. Attorney General Rob Bonta announced he's joining a bipartisan coalition of state attorneys general investigating how TikTok promotes itself to children and young adults, a possible violation of state consumer protection laws. KQED's Rachel Myro has more from our Silicon Valley desk. In a statement, Bonta wrote, quote, We know this takes a devastating toll on children's mental health and well-being, but we don't know what social media companies knew about these harms and when. The same attorneys general are leading a similar investigation into Meta, which owns Instagram and Facebook. The TikTok announcement follows President Biden's first State of the Union address, in which he said social media platforms must be held accountable for the, quote, national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. California's courts, police, and other services are partially funded through fines and fees. But for low-income Californians, those fines and fees could mean a push deeper into poverty. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports. Researchers found a link between monetary penalties for offenses and infractions and things like housing instability, mental health stressors, and financial exploitation. Study co-author Brian Sykes, a professor of criminology at UC Irvine, says that with California's projected multi-billion budget surplus, We could fund a number of institutions already without having to become predatory for the, the most impoverished in our state. Why are we doing this? He says that to lessen the racial disparities in who ends up paying these fees, reform efforts should focus not just on the penal code, but all categories of state law. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Back in 2020, when then-candidate Joe Biden was debating then-President Donald Trump, he came out strongly against one particular practice, separating migrant families at the border. Parents were ripped, their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. So it was a surprise when, in December, news broke that the Biden administration had suddenly dropped out of negotiations to compensate families for the harm they'd suffered. And advocates believe money and politics are to blame. KQED's Michelle Wiley reports. Back in October, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration was in talks to pay up to $450,000 to those harmed by family separation under the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance policy. These payments were just one part of negotiations between the administration and the American Civil Liberties Union to settle a long-running class action lawsuit. And according to ACLU attorney Lee Gallant, that number wasn't firm. There was no offer on the table. There was no specific amount on the table. And we were prepared to continue negotiating. But as soon as that figure, 450000 was out in the world, the backlash was swift. This incomprehensibly stupid idea of... That is going to be a slap in the face 
to every hardworking American. Dozens of House Republicans just sent a letter to three cabinet secretaries behind the reported plan demanding answers. And in December, the Biden administration pulled out of talks to compensate families altogether. The two sides were trying to settle claims filed by parents under the Federal Tort Claims Act, a law that allows people to be compensated if the federal government causes them harm. For example, So the police harm someone and or unlawfully detain them, then the victim is allowed to sue the government. Carol Ann Donahoe is the managing attorney for the Family Reunification Project at Alotrolado, a California-based immigrant rights group. She says the families can clearly argue they were harmed. In some cases, it was physical harm. It's emotional distress because we ripped their children from them. And for parents who've been allowed back into the U.S. to reunite with their children and pursue legal status here, that money could really come in handy. A woman named Sandra sought asylum at the Arizona border in early 2017. She had fled Guatemala with her two children because she didn't trust police to protect her from a violent neighbor. But three days after arriving in the U.S., officials took her kids away, saying the facility she was staying in couldn't support them. Sandra was deported without her children and didn't see them for three years until she was allowed to return last spring. She and the kids, now 14 and 15, are sharing one bedroom in a relative's home, and she's suing the government for the trauma that the separation caused. She didn't want to use her last name for fear that talking to the press would harm her case. Sandra says it's hard in the U.S. because things are so expensive. She's trying to earn enough so they can move into their own apartment. And she tells her kids to focus on their studies so they can get good jobs and not suffer so much. Since the negotiations fell apart, people like Sandra will have to go back to court to argue their cases. And the Biden administration will have to defend Trump's family separation policy in front of a judge. If the government loses, it may end up paying families anyway. The Justice Department declined to say why negotiators walked away. But according to UC Berkeley political scientist Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, the upcoming midterm election may have played a role. What the White House in a midterm wants is they want the conversation to be one where they think that they can be portrayed in a positive light. But the ACLU's Gallant says it'd be wrong to assume that compensating families for family separation will hurt Democrats politically. You recall in 2018, not just Democrats and liberals, but conservatives and Republicans were outraged about Trump administration taking little babies away from their parents. So I think the Biden administration is wrong to think the politics will be against them for doing what's right here. And Gallant says, regardless of the politics, the administration needs to do the right thing. For The California Report, I'm Michelle Wiley. And that's The California Report for Thursday, March 3rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt. 
whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.